Father, as we come to this time in your word, and we find ourselves in a passage that is probably familiar, we pray that you would guard our hearts against lax familiarity. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us today. Speak clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have said or done something, anything, that you regret? <laughs> something or anything that you've said or done that you wish you could undo? All right, now don't look around. But there are a couple of people here today that are either lying, they haven't been paying attention, or they're really nervous that I'm going to ask them publicly what it was. <laughs> you see, the question is not really if you have done or if I have done something or said something that we regret or that we wish we could undo. The question is, what do you do about it when you have said or done something? that you regret or wish you could undo. Well, a few years ago, one man took it upon himself, a man named Jesse Jacobs, he took it upon himself to make it possible for people to apologize without actually having to deal with the person that they'd wronged. He, he created what he called an apology hotline. Here's the description. People unable or unwilling to unburden their conscience in person may call the hotline and leave a message of apology on the answering machine. Once he got it up and running, he was averaging 30 to 50 calls every single week as people would phone this number and apologize for everything from adultery to embezzlement. In an interview, he said this, the hotline offers participants a chance to alleviate their guilt and, to some degree, to own up to their misdeeds. I'm just hoping these people will feel better just by getting whatever's been bothering them off their chest. One caller to the hotline said this, I hope this apology will cleanse me and basically purify my soul God knows I need it. Wow. People wanting to deal with this burden they have, this regret that they have, wanting to deal with it without actually dealing with it. Wanting to find some kind of relief for this burden they carry inside that eats away at them, but not wanting to go to the person they've hurt, they've sinned against, they've offended, and, and handle it. And so really, it's about relieving my stress rather than making a situation right. Wow. Well, this morning we begin our Easter series, and we're going to take this month and we're going to walk through the last three chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26, 27, and 28. And as we do, we'll be looking at the people of Easter. These are not characters. Never ever refer to them as characters. They are not. They are real people. This is not a novel we're reading. 
These are accurate, real, historical events that we will be looking at. Real people engaged in real events. People who played a critical part in the events that led up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But we're not just looking for historical information to review as we look through these chapters. As we examine these lives and these interactions, we want to find out how in the world that might relate to us here and now today. And we begin with this issue of of handling regret. As we look at a man named Judas, a man whose name is synonymous with betrayal. And as we do, we'll look at how not to handle regret. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we begin by looking at the roots of rejection here. Matthew 26 verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The time period that we're zoning in on, these last couple of days before the Passover. We find ourselves in in Jerusalem and its surrounding area at an incredibly intense time. It is an emotionally intense time because it is Passover. And families are streaming in from every corner of Israel into the city to come to the temple for worship, for sacrifice, to celebrate the Passover. There are Jews today who still will end their celebration of the Passover by saying, next year in Jerusalem. That's the dream. To get to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so people are finally making it to Jerusalem. And they're so excited and they're here and the crowds and the zoo that's going on with trying to just find a place to stay and get something to eat and keep an eye on the kids and everything that's going on there. Meeting up with family and friends they hadn't seen in a long time. It was an emotionally charged and intense time. It was a spiritually, religiously charged and intense time. Because people were coming for sacrifice, for worship, to remember what God had done for them at the Exodus and delivering them as they celebrated the Passover. Not only that, a few days before at the Palm Sunday event, the parade into the city, the triumphal entry we call it, the people had been singing praises to this man riding in on this colt. They'd been singing messianic psalms. They'd been calling him their anointed, God's anointed one, their promised deliverer. The Messiah. And the religious leaders didn't like that. He was undermining everything they had worked so hard to develop. 
This was a religiously charged time. This was a politically charged time. Israel, conquered long ago by the Roman Empire, under the thumb of the Romans, taxes, booths set up everywhere, taxing people left and right, coming and going, soldiers marching throughout the city in greater numbers because of the large crowds that were expected. It was at these types of events that they expected trouble. If there was any sign of rebellion, if there was somebody that was going to try and stir up something against the Romans, this would be the setting. And so there were lots of Roman soldiers on hand. There were no doubt Roman soldiers in the neighborhood watching across the valley as this parade comes down the Mount of Olives, down this winding narrow road, with people singing and chanting and hailing this deliverer. As they do, they're waving palm branches, which were a a national symbol. Their deliverer was coming. They were expecting the Romans to be gone within the week. This was a charged time. Things were happening. At the same time, God's plan is unfolding. Jesus is coming towards the city. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem because he knows that he will be killed at Passover. And not because God said, well, what would be a good time in the calendar to do this? Passover is about the crucifixion. Passover was used to celebrate God's deliverance from Exodus. But as you trace through their celebration, it was all pointing to Jesus all the way along. God's plan was unfolding within these next two days. Now the religious leaders, they clearly had their own plan. They wanted to kill him and they were bound and determined to do so. But they thought because he was so popular, they'd better wait until after Passover and the crowds went home. Well, their plan wasn't going to happen. But it is in this setting that we find the events we're about to read. In fact, in John chapter 11, the disciples are trying to talk Jesus out of going to the neighborhood of Jerusalem. Out of of leaving, hiding, and going to, to see Lazarus in Bethany, just over the hill, just over the Mount of Olives, right there from Jerusalem. And when Jesus was determined to go, what did the disciples say? Well, all right, boys, let's go die with him. They knew this was the atmosphere into which they walked. Verse 6 tells us now, when Jesus was at Bethany, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. When Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, the house of Simon the leper, why in the world would you go to a party at a home of a leper? This is the first century. There's only one reason there's a group gathered in Simon the leper's house. It's because they call him Simon the leper as a reminder that he's no longer Simon the leper. Jesus had healed him. 
And he is there, and it sounds as you compile the Gospel accounts that Simon the leper, who had been healed, wanted to do something for Jesus. And he's hosting this dinner, and Lazarus is there. They're celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus. And Mary and Martha are there. And Martha's, Mary's serving God. There's things going on in this place. And during that gathering, Verse 7 says, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus reclining at the table with all the other guests, eating their dinner. This woman comes, and she breaks this jar, and she pours this very expensive ointment on him. And, and we read the disciples are indignant. They're upset. They're angry. They're annoyed. What a waste. Do you know, how, you know what we could have got for that if we'd gone down to the market and sold it? I mean, the tourists are here. They'll pay higher. <laughs> we got a good... Got a, Good price for that. John chapter 12 tells us, in John's record of this account, he points out to us that it's Judas who's the most vocal. It is Judas that airs this opinion and this response. Judas Iscariot said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Oh. Oh. So Judas is angry, not about the poor people that won't eat tonight because we didn't sell this perfume. He's angry that he doesn't have access to all the money we could have got for that. He was padding his pocket. He's out for himself, not the poor. On top of that, he's angry that this, at this missed opportunity, but on top of that, Jesus has the nerve to rebuke him publicly in this party. Hey, leave her alone. This is important what she did. This is about me and my burial and my death is just around the corner and this is what's going on. He's annoyed. He's angry at about the money. He's embarrassed at the rebuke of Jesus. And here around this table, we have Jesus. Jesus anointed in an act of worship to prepare him for his burial. And across the table, we have Judas, who's annoyed in an act of selfishness, which will lead to the death of Jesus. How angry was Judas? 
Let's continue on. Verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What, um, what, what will you give me? How much? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Luke tells us in Luke 22, John tells us in John 13, that there's a point when Satan enters into Judas and he heads down this road finally. We know throughout the Gospels, we we keep being pointed out that Jesus knows it's Judas that's going to betray him. There's no mystery to Jesus. He knows that Judas is the one. The question is, who opened the door to all of this, though? With his anger and his greed and his selfishness and his bitterness and his hard heart, Judas did. So it's a healthy reminder to us today to guard our hearts. To guard our hearts. Well, we move from these roots of rejection and this anger that drives him to have this meeting, to arrange for the betrayal, to the actual betrayal. So now jump forward to verse 47 here in Matthew 26. Now we come and and Jesus is praying with the other disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, Olive Grove really, on the, 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 the hill of the Mount of Olives looking straight across at the eastern gate to the city and the temple that's there. All within view as they stand here. And Jesus, reminding His disciples of what must come and what must be done and happen to Him, He says, rise, let's be going. My betrayer is at hand. Verse 47 says, while He was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with Him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. He goes and makes his deal for his 30 pieces of silver. He waits for the opportune time. During the dinner, he slips out. And he knows the plan is to go to pray in the garden that they'd gone to so many times. And so he slips out to go and round up the mob that will come and arrest Jesus. It's all set in place now. He works out the signal where he will come and give that that traditional kiss of greeting of a friend. And that friend's kiss is the signal of betrayal. In fact, Luke 22 tells us that Jesus, before He says, friend, do what you came to do, first He says, Judas, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Wow. If we could see the eyes of Jesus in that moment, if we could truly feel the heart of Jesus in that moment, if we could have been there to hear 
the tone of voice of Jesus as he looks at Judas and just says, friend, do what you came to do. Wow, what would we see? What would we hear? Jesus was determined to go to the cross. He had made that clear. That, that matter was settled there in the garden. He was prepared and determined to go to the cross. But that does not take away the pain and the sting in these moments of the betrayal of a friend. You been there? The pain of betrayal goes deep. It goes deep. It's not someone walking away and turning their back on you. It is someone that you know and love and trust coming up to you and smiling and stabbing you right in the back. And that hurts. And Jesus looks at Judas and says, Oh, friend, do what you came to do. Judas had followed Jesus he had listened to Jesus. He had watched Jesus. He had interacted with Jesus day after day after day. Judas had taught and healed and traveled when he went out two by two, paired up with the other disciples. He had done lots of disciple-type things. But his heart was never in it. His heart was never in it. The heart of Judas was always for and about Judas. Never about Jesus. And as we read this morning, as Roger read to us from Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, if you will come after Me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Me. Judas hears those words and says, deny myself? <laughs> no thank you. I'm going to help myself. And I'll get rid of anybody that tries to stop Me. And he betrays Jesus. And Jesus is arrested there in the olive grove. Well, Jesus spends the night in the first of the kangaroo court trials going on as the religious leaders decide that, okay, now's the time. We were going to wait until after Passover, but we've got him. We've got to seize the moment. We're going to take him and hand him to Pilate, the Roman governor. He'll have no choice but to kill him, and we're finally going to be rid of him. They condemn Jesus and pack him up to ship him off to Pilate. And in chapter 27 of Matthew, we read this, verse 1, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. This is your problem. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And went and hanged himself. Mere hours after Jesus' arrest, he's being taken to Pilate where his death will be demanded. We're told that Judas, seeing where this is actually going, changed his mind. Now the ESV says he changed his mind. That's a poor translation. 
A much better translation is he was seized by remorse or he felt remorse. And the reason that's a poor translation is because change your mind, change of mind, that has to do with, with uh, repentance. And that is not the word used here. The word used here is regret and remorse. We don't want to confuse those two. It's very important that we keep that straight. Judas saw what was happening because of his actions and now he is filled with remorse. And he goes and he tries to return the money. And they won't take it. And so he goes and takes his own life. An act of total despair. You might be looking at me this morning going, wow, I came to be encouraged today. And this is what you've got? There's a word for our hearts here this morning from the life of Judas. We've already seen that we need to guard our hearts because when it becomes about us and not about Jesus, that is showing us that something is way out of whack and might not be as real as we think it is. But we also need to understand that it is possible This is so frightening. It is possible to hang around with the people of Jesus. It is possible to say say Jesus-type things. To sing Jesus-themed songs. To serve in Jesus-focused ministries. To do Jesus-type things for years and not truly be a follower of Jesus. It's possible. It's possible. No surrender of the heart. No salvation forgiveness from God. Just in it for me. No denying of self. Just in it for what I can get out of it. Oh, friends. Today, may we examine our hearts. Examine your heart. Is this about Jesus or is this about me? Because the Gospel is not Jesus came and died and now everything's good. The Gospel is Jesus who knew no sin came and and took my sin upon Him and became sin for me and God unleashed His wrath and judgment for my rebellion against God on Jesus. So that if I acknowledge Jesus for who He is, Son of God, only hope, And I turn my back on living my way and instead I change direction. I surrender to Him and I trust Him for His forgiveness alone. I may now stand before God on Jesus' merits and His righteousness. That is the Gospel. People that have done that does not do that for me. I myself, I myself must surrender deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus. It's possible to spend a lifetime in church and not be a follower of Jesus. Secondly, I need to show us the difference between a couple of English words here. The word regret means an emotion arising from the wish that some matter or situation could be different than it is 
due to something that was said or done or not said or done. Words like, I regret to inform you. Or you can't, you can't attend the meeting, so you send your regrets. I wish I could be there, but I can't. It's just not working out. Regret is a feeling. Remorse is an emotion arising from painful recollection of something one would prefer not to have done or said, usually because it has hurt others. Regret is about a situation. Remorse is about what I've done. But they are both feelings. They're internal. They stir around. They roll around in my mind and bring pictures and thoughts and conversations and words back to my mind. They have that pit in my stomach and it just turns around and around. But it's a feeling. Repentance is totally different. Repentance acknowledges those things, that regret and that remorse. But it is a change of mind. I didn't deserve to do that. They didn't deserve to get what they got coming. I don't deserve to be forgiven. This was sin, it was wrong, it's rebellion against God and it needs to be dealt with. It's a change of mind and change of action and change of direction and I turn and I follow God's way instead. With all of the public confessions by fallen politicians and sports figures and business executives and so on, Susan Wise Bauer wrote a book called The Art of the Public Grovel. She assessed a whole series of these confessions. And here's what she writes. An apology is an expression of regret. I am sorry. A confession is an admission of fault. I am sorry because I did wrong. I sinned. But that's as far as either one goes. Apology and confession address an audience. True repentance is a humble change of direction. It implies an inner change that will be manifested in an outward action. Regret and remorse are just feelings. Repentance is the action of turning, surrendering to God and doing things His way, walking in a new direction. Judas had so many opportunities to repent. When that feeling first rose up inside of him when she broke that jar and, and anointed Jesus, he could have dealt with it right then, but he didn't. When Jesus corrected him at the dinner, he could have repented, but he didn't. On his way to that meeting to arrange the betrayal, he could have changed his mind and turned, turned a block early, but he didn't. As he was negotiating the price, he could have changed and what ran out, but he didn't. As he left that meeting with his pocket jingling, he could have turned around and, and changed his mind, but he didn't. At the supper, as Jesus is looking across at him and saying, one of you is about to betray me, he could have repented on his way to the garden he could have got lost in the dark but he didn't afterwards he goes to the ones complicit with him in this sin of 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 betraying jesus arresting jesus he goes to those who are complicit with him to try and deal with it they're in no position to forgive him they're as guilty as he is he does not go to the one whom he sinned against. 
the only one who could forgive. It's like he picked up the phone and called Jesse Jacobs' hotline. I just want to feel better and get some things off my chest without going and actually dealing with the issue. Today, far too many people live in that place where their, their lives are full of regret and remorse and never take the trip to repentance. I have a friend who likes to call it living on the edge of repentance. We think that apology, we think the confession is what we need. Well, we confess our sin, yes. But that's tied in with other things. It's not just saying I did it and then moving on. Repentance. We get so far and we won't take that final step. You know, there are a lot of people in our culture that think that churches exist just to make people feel guilty. And if that's true, then shame on us. If that's where it stops. The light will always shine in the darkness and bring things to light nobody wants to deal with. But the church is here to point the guilty to the one who can forgive. That we might experience the joy, the relief, the reality of forgiveness and walking in newness of life with Jesus. That's what the church is about. That's what our message is. Yes, you're guilty. We're all guilty. But forgiveness and life are available. You don't have to live in that place of remorse. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That kind of repentance turns and says, I'm here for forgiveness and I need to walk your way in a new, a new direction. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Why? I'm sorry I got caught. Ah, I'm sorry I hurt somebody, but I'm not going to deal with it. I'm just going to walk around and still carry it on my shoulders. Wow. Friends, as you look at Judas and his part, and the betrayal, arrest, crucifixion of Jesus. Don't just point your finger. Close your Bible and walk away. Reflect on your heart. And ask yourself, am I hanging around with Jesus or am I actually following Him? Am I living with remorse or am I walking in repentance? The joy, the peace of forgiveness, walking in new direction. If we do that, He is faithful and forgives and cleanses. We're about to sing a great song, a great hymn of just joy and gratitude for the love of God, the love of Christ as we come to the communion table. As we do, as we do, would you reflect on the love of God again? Just demonstrate it to us at the cross and either respond to Him. Maybe for the first, the first time it's clear today, respond to Him. 
I need what only you have. I'm guilty. You have forgiveness. I deny myself. I surrender. It's all about Jesus. Respond to Him. And if you have, and you're a child of God here today, oh, would you thank Him? Thank Him again for what He's done for you. And as we leave this place, guard your heart. But as we're called to in the Bible, as we meet around this table, examine your heart. Examine your heart. If God says, hey, that needs repenting and forgiveness, deal with it. Deal with it. And then join us at the table with gratitude, humility, and relief that comes from forgiveness. Let's sing together.